today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, and you can find that in your Bible, in the bulletin, or on the screen behind me. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasness, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what, they, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, began, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And when he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you all for having me. It is so good to be with you. Um, I know you didn't really have a choice in the matter, but thank you, Mike, I should say. This, I think this is a, a win in two ways. First, I get some experience um, as an intern preaching, which is uh, amazing. But also, if you don't like what you hear, I am just an intern, and I can say this was, this was just Mike's idea. Um, so let me say a quick prayer, and then we can begin. Lord, thank you again for gathering us at the high point of our week's Thank you for your grace and your love. I thank you for your word. Your word is open in our midst, and I do pray that you would open up our hearts also. Overcome my inadequacies, for I am a sinner among sinners, Lord, and I need your grace. Um, I pray that you would kill us and make us alive. In your son's name we pray, amen. Here's a paradox for you all. One of my favorite movies of all times is Jaws but I am absolutely terrified of sharks. Jaws is about a really large shark, if you didn't get that paradox. I love that movie. I even love Shark Week, but my wife cannot convince me to go past the sandbar at the beach. She's out in the deep with all of the actual waves, and I'm 
with the kids boogie boarding in the shallows. Besides just being a bit of a weirdo, I've tried to understand this paradox in my life. And this is what I've come up with thus far. The very thing that intrigues me about sharks is also the thing that terrifies me. You know, there's a great scene in Jaws when the three characters who are hunting this massive shark, the shark swims by their boat. This is the shark that will virtually destroy their boat and kill one of the characters later in the movie. But when they catch sight of it in all of its grandeur, they're absolutely mesmerized. They've never seen such a powerful animal before. And for a moment, they're even amazed. They stand in awe of the very power that threatens to destroy them. Why open a sermon talking about sharks? Because I think my love of Jaws, but my fear of sharks, illustrates something a lot more common. We are drawn by power. We're also terrified of power. To stick with the nautical theme, think of how many people flock to SeaWorld per week to see Shamu. Shamu was an incredibly powerful whale that could do amazing things. But that power cut both ways. We all remember in 2010, sadly and tragically, when Shamu attacked one of its trainers and killed her. Shamu was amazing, also incredibly terrifying. We may even think of the NFL, the National Football League. How many hundreds of thousands of people watch these superhuman athletes per week tackle each other? They can all bench press 400 pounds. They can squat even more. And on Sunday, we want to see that power on display. But that power is also dangerous. With just one hit, they can knock someone completely out. They could knock me out. And sadly, they can also wield that power off the field in dangerous ways. It's estimated that roughly 55% of all NFL player-related arrests are due to domestic violence. We are drawn by power. We are also terrified of power. Maybe you know from personal experience what I'm talking about. Maybe you've known a charismatic person who could be the life of the party one moment, and uncontrollably angry the next. Or maybe you've been burned by someone in a position of trusted authority who has used that authority against you. A pastor, a priest, a boss, or a politician. Or maybe, as you've listened to our culture talk extensively about power, you're starting to ask questions. What is power? Who gets to be in power? What is power good for? Interestingly, our passage this morning is very much concerned with questions of power. Our passage wants us to wonder who ultimately is in control of this world? And how should we respond to that power? With fear or with love? We see in our passage one of the greatest feats of strength in the entire New Testament, perhaps the entire Bible. But we also come to see some surprising things about the nature of power, both the power of God and the power of those spiritual beings who oppose God, what Scripture calls demons. So when we look more in depth at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we will come to see 
that because Christ's kingdom comes to us with great power, we must come to him with great desire. I'll say that again. Because Christ's kingdom comes to us with great power, we must come to him with great desire. And we'll see that theme, that overarching theme, fleshed out in two ways. For in this passage, we see two powers and two desires. Let's look at that first point, the two powers. Look again with me at verses one through five. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stone, stones. In these verses, Mark gives us a depressing picture of a depressing situation. You'll remember from last week that Jesus and his disciples had been traveling across the Sea of Galilee, and they had met a terrible storm. Jesus stopped with a few words. Now they land in the country of the Gerasenes. This is Gentile country, what Mark later refers to as the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities. These were cities under Roman rule, but filled with Greek people and Greek culture. Jewish readers of Mark's gospel would have had some strong opinions about this region, and they would not be surprised at all to find that the first thing Jesus encounters is a demon-possessed man. But Mark is not interested in slamming Gentile paganism to score points with his Jewish readers. He's interested in helping us to feel the full force of this man's depressing life. He wants us to see not a hopeless Gentile, but someone within reach of God's redemptive power. And to that end, he offers detail after heartbreaking detail. A demon-possessed man sprints to Jesus and falls on his knees in front of him. Why? What would cause such desperation? Well, Mark tells us a few things. First, this man lived in the tombs. The tombs were burial caves, caves where the dead of the region would be buried. This man literally lived among corpses. Second, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Why did he need to be bound? In all likelihood, because when the demons possessed him, he would become incredibly strong and incredibly violent, a danger to everyone around him. But who was binding him? Perhaps people from his town, but perhaps also his own loved ones who had to do something to protect themselves. Third, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man was filled with self-loathing and a desire to harm himself. Not only was he a danger to others, but he was probably his own worst danger. So here is this man. For God knows how long, he has been living in complete isolation from human society and his family, thoroughly oppressed by the demonic, living a subhuman life among the dead with no hope of change in sight. What's worse? He had yet to meet anyone 
who could do anything more than restrain him. But this man needed something stronger than chains. And so he runs to Jesus, and with a great drama and intensity, he yells, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, in the name of God, don't torture me. Don't be mistaken. The demons did not come to this man to negotiate. They came to beg. They drive this man to run and scream at Jesus, probably to scare him. They want to intimidate Jesus into leaving them alone, and they even appeal to the name of God ironically. Why? Because they knew that their time of torturing this man was up, and there was nothing they could do about it. A superior power had arrived. But our story doesn't stop there, although it could. In verse 9, Jesus asks, what is your name? And the man responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. Why would Jesus ask this? It's not for his own benefit. He wants this man, and he wants us, to know the depth to which this man was lost. Commentators note that Legion most likely refers to a Roman legion, which was a unit of about 5,000 soldiers, which leads one commentator to note that through this man, Jesus encountered not just one demon, but the entire kingdom of Satan. This man was not a Roman colony, but a satanic colony, a literal outpost of hell. So oppressed was he that when Jesus asked for his name, first he says, my name, and then he says, we are many. He has completely lost his personality. And we have no idea where his identity ends and the demons begin. And so, the demons, knowing their reign of terror is over, beg Jesus to allow them to enter the pigs, which I will admit is a strange detail. But Mark does not dwell on it much. Jesus permits them, and as the thousands of pigs rush off the bank, we receive a living image of the kind of tyranny awful tyranny this man was subjected to. You may be thinking, great, thanks for retelling us this story. But what in the world could this strange story about Jesus and a legion of demons mean for me here in 21st century America? And that's a great question. I sense that behind it are really two different camps. The first camp is suspicious of the hocus-pocus, ghosts and demons stuff in our story. The second camp is okay with the supernatural, not so bothered by it, but still wants to know what in the world this passage could mean for us today. And if the first camp describes you, if your gut is instinct to this story is incredulity and suspicion, then I would like to ask you a question. What better alternative to Satan do you have in order to account for the evil in our world? What better alternative to Satan and his demons do you have to account for the evil we experience in our world? There was a Columbia University professor named Andrew Del Banco, not a Christian by any means, who wrote a fascinating book years ago entitled The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil. And in this book, he argues that as Americans' belief in the supernatural 
diminished, their ability to account for the evil they experienced also diminished. When someone does something evil, like the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, our first thought is, what happened to him to make him like that? We explain people's behavior through their psychology or their economic class or their sociology. But Del Banco wasn't satisfied with that, and so the entire book is one long attempt to argue and show how weak our moral vocabularies have become in the absence of Satan and his demons. He says this, and you can see this at the front of your bulletin, quote, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. We can't actually reckon with evil. We truthfully struggle to call anything evil. So again, I ask, if you don't think Satan is real, do you have a better explanation for why human beings find it so incredibly easy to kill, steal from, abuse, lie to, and oppress each other? Now, I'm not saying two things. I'm not saying that the last word on human behavior is found in our upbringing, our economic class, our psyche, or any other natural cause. I'm not saying we can reduce human behavior to anything natural. I'm also not saying that everything is demonic. I'm not saying that everything is supernatural, that your every bad thought is a demon, or that every bad action in the world is demonic. What I am saying is this. The Bible teaches that there is a power in the world that has a real influence on human affairs, a power that is fundamentally opposed to God and his creation. And what we learn about the satanic power from our passage is that it seeks to dehumanize us. The devil and his demons seek to tyrannize over us so that they can deform us and make us subhuman. I'm talking to the second camp now. The devil and his demons seek to conquer human beings, not just through possessing us like the man in our passage. Although I will say this, the demonic is not a problem for most of the world. Talk to anybody who's been in the mission field outside of the West, and they will probably have a story for you of something they've encountered. I'm even thinking of a, an instance of a woman who became a Christian because she was demon-possessed, she repented of her involvement and turned to Christ. I'm even thinking of the fact that the Catholic Church has reported in America that their demand for exorcism has gone up. This is in our backyard. People genuinely come to Christ because he has power over the supernatural. So I, I, I want us to be aware of that. But it is still true that the demons and the devil do not just seek to conquer us through possession. No, scripture teaches that behind our temptations and our sins is a spiritual influence. Paul in Ephesians chapter six says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The most mundane temptations, temptations to lust, to gossip, to be greedy, to brag about ourselves, have the devil behind them. Even the very first sin in scripture was influenced by the serpent. Christian, listen to me. 
There is a power in this world that desires to destroy you. That is what Jesus reveals to us in our passage. What did the demons do to the man? They made him like a beast. And what did they do to the pigs? They drove them off the cliff and killed them. So think about that whenever you feel tempted. Use your imagination. Consider the fact that although it would feel good to watch porn, to gossip about your boss, to have a bigger savings account, or to tell everyone how great you are, the devil is using those things to drive your life off the cliff and drown you. He wants to devour you, Peter says in 1 Peter. He is restless to find someone to destroy. Sin is genuinely hard to fight because it promises to be so satisfying and so good to us. The pastor and author Brian Chapel once said, we sin because we love it. We won't gain any ground in our fight against sin until we cease to be in love with the good we think sin offers us. And we won't cease to be in love with what sin offers us until we see that it offers us nothing, precisely nothing but death and misery. So remember the demon-possessed man. Remember the pigs. A life of giving in to sin is not one that will cause us to flourish. It is a life of being made less and less human, less and less how we were made to be by a good creator God. When we think of sin that way, we're a lot more like the demon-possessed man than we initially thought, aren't we? We all give in to the influence of sin on a daily, even an hourly basis. The man in this passage is not a freak. He's instead like a mirror. And when we look at him, we see a reflection of our own rotten condition. We are all enslaved by the power of sin that does nothing but bring death into our lives. But Christian, listen to me again. There is another power in this world, a superior power, a power that desires to save you. You know, Jesus calmed the storm with a few words, and that was enough to fill his disciples with fear and awe. But how does that compare with slaying the kingdom of Satan with a few words? The storm was a lesser chaos compared to that. Recall that the best people could do for the demon-possessed man was restrain him with a chain. Folks, this is the best anyone in the world can do for us. This is the best Tony Robbins or Oprah or Joel Osteen or Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or the keto diet, or CrossFit, or any other technique for living your best life now can do for you. They are chains. They are external constraints on our bad behavior. Tony Robbins, the famous self-help guru, he's a powerful speaker. He can yell at you, and he can inspire you to make the most of your life, but he cannot stop you from being a selfish person. He cannot keep you from your sin. He cannot free you from yourself. 
you know what makes Christ and his kingdom superior? It works from the inside out. Christ didn't just subdue the demon-possessed man. He didn't just find the best chain to hold him in place. He freed him so that when Christ was done with this man, he didn't need a chain anymore. Why? Because the chains inside of him were forever broken. And that's power. I'm reminded of the scene in C.S. Lewis's story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I think it's the fourth or fifth book. Forgive me, Narnia fans, I can't remember. In that story, Eustace, a snooty, stuck-up kid, stumbles on a hoard of dragon's gold. He starts falling in love with the gold. He starts imagining what, will, what it'll do for him. And so Lewis says that sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he became a dragon himself. Eustace turns himself into a monster, and he hates himself for it. But one day, Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, approaches him. He takes Eustace the dragon to a spring and tells him that he has to undress himself before he can get in. So Eustace tries to scratch at his scales. He does his best to undragon himself. He tries a few times, but he can't seem to get underneath the dragon skin. So Aslan says to Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, Eustace says, but I was pretty near desperate. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Eustace sees his dragon skin lying on the ground, and Aslan takes him and throws him into the spring. At first it stings, but then it begins to feel wonderful. I found that all the pain had gone, Eustace says, and then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Folks, our sin makes us dragons and monsters, just like Eustace. But Christ has the power to rip through our dragon skin and tear us to our very hearts. It hurts. It stings. But what is the end result? Christ uses his great power not to destroy us like the devil, but to make us human. In verse 15, Mark tells us that the man formerly possessed by a legion of demons was seen sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. He's no longer a wild, naked banshee running among the tombs. He's a human being again. And this is what Christ wants for us. He has the power to conquer our sin and the devil's hold over us he storms the fortress of our hearts where sin reigns to tear sin out of us with his great claws to drive it from us with a word. Why? So that we can be the human beings he made us to be. He comes to us with great power for our good, for our flourishing. And this power is for anyone who comes to Christ in humility admitting that we are dragons and monsters of our own making who need to be torn to the heart. So there are two passages 
uh, sorry, two powers in our passage. But we also see two different responses to Christ's power, what I've called two desires. And as I said before, because Christ comes to us with great power, we must come to him with great desire. So let's look at that second point, the two desires. The two differing desires are pretty clear in verses 14 to 20, pretty self-evident. The villages, the villagers and those who wanted, or, I'm sorry, the villagers and those who watched their pigs rush off the cliff come to Christ in fear. <laughs> they are afraid of the evident power this man possesses. The evident power Christ has over the spiritual realm, over the human soul. And they aren't sure what Christ will do next because they can't seem to get control over this man. So they ask him to leave. It is striking how similar the villagers' response to Jesus is to that of the demons. Both acknowledge that he is a superior power. Both are afraid. Both beg Jesus to leave them alone. And this should break our hearts. But we do learn one reason why Jesus can be so unattractive and unappealing to us. In the presence of Christ, we feel radically vulnerable. We no longer feel so powerful over ourselves as if we are in control of our fates and our lives. And we hate that. This is actually a good spiritual barometer test. You cannot stand before Christ and feel like the most important person in the room. A prideful spirit indicates that we have not felt Christ's greatness. But if Jesus not only has great power, but ultimately uses that power for our good, then preferring to have control over our lives rather than submitting to Christ is suicidal. Do you see that? Rejecting Jesus in any area of our lives simply because we don't want to give up the control we don't actually have is like someone deathly allergic to dairy refusing to stop drinking dairy. You're clinging to the freedom and power to kill yourself when there is a greater power available to you that will bring you life if you would only humble yourself and submit to him. The only man who gets it in our passage is the demon-possessed man. The power of Christ does not evoke fear out of him, but love and longing. He has been freed so that he might serve the man who freed him. And so he begs to come with Jesus and his disciples, to be one of them. But this is the final surprising twist on a fascinating story. Jesus says, no, you cannot come with me because I have another purpose for you. I want you to be the first missionary to the Gentiles on my behalf. I want you to stay right where you are, right in your local context, and tell everyone how merciful the God of Israel has been to you. Jesus gives this man a high calling, but he also gives him a hard calling. He would be the sole Christian in a staunchly pagan world. But is this man dejected by Jesus' commands? Not according to Mark. Mark says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's a simple equation for the man. Jesus commands, the man obeys. 
And what's the result? Everyone marveled. Now, what's our takeaway for this morning? There's a lot of takeaways. The first one is personal. I am personally moved by this man's example of evangelism. We talk a lot in the Christian world about skill, having answers to questions, being equipped and ready. It's very hard to get into spiritual conversations, and it is uncharted territory sometimes. But this man just proclaims the fact that God's power and love has come to him in a unique way. And that was enough. That was enough. And that is at the heart of evangelism. Simply displaying that Christ is unparalleled. That his love and his power and the way that it coordinates together for our good is like nothing this world has ever seen. That's evangelism. Beyond answering questions. Beyond being prepared. That's at the heart. So first, I'm personally moved and challenged by that. But there can be another takeaway for us this morning. You know, we all come to Jesus with agendas. I came to Christ in high school because I wanted higher self-esteem. Others come to Christ because they think he's going to give them a thriving family. Or they feel some sense of distant, inchoate guilt, and they think Christ will make them a better person. So what does he do? He accepts our coming because he's gracious. But he gives us not what we think we most need, but what he knows is best for us. Basically, Jesus is the greater Mr. Miyagi. I just indicated how many people have seen Karate Kid. That's actually going to be the title to my next seminary paper, Jesus is the greater Mr. Miyagi. I mean, remember from Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel? Daniel wants to know how to beat up his bullies. He's been terrified by them. So Mr. Miyagi promises to teach him karate. Daniel comes the first morning expecting to learn how to kick and punch and do all of the karate things. But Miyagi gives him a paintbrush and makes him paint his backyard fence. Next, after he's done with that, he gives him, or he makes him wax his car. And Daniel's absolutely furious. He came to learn karate, not how to do chores. But what happens at the end? At the climactic fight scene at the end of the movie, Daniel paints the fence. And he waxes on and waxes off and wins the match because Miyagi had been teaching him karate all along. It's a very touching ending. Here's the deal. If Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God who can squash a legion of demons with a word, then you cannot invite him into your life to be your secretary. In your relationship to Christ the Lord, he sets the agenda, not you. This fundamentally changes many things in life. It changes the way we pray. We should ask God for things in our prayers. We should come to him with our requests. But we should start our prayers by praising God and asking for his kingdom to come before we just ask him for stuff. It changes the way we plan our lives. We consult scripture, we pray, we talk to others to get their advice so that we can learn what God desires for our lives. 
And we ask God to make us desire what he does. It even changes the way we belong in a church community. We cease to use church for our own gain. We cease to make church into whatever we think it needs to be like. And we ask God to conform our church to his will, not ours. Jesus' agenda might not be what you think it needs to be. He might put you in places in life that make no sense, where it seems that nothing productive is happening at all. You might be painting fences and waxing on and waxing off for years, while what you want to know is karate. But folks, remember the demon-possessed man. Christ turned him from a monster into a man, and he gave him a high calling that was not what he asked for. But this man's desire to do what Jesus said surpassed his desire for his own gain. And what happened? The man had a fruitful ministry. Countless people heard of God's mercy through him. And this is exactly what God wants for you and I. He wants our lives to be like a lush garden full of people who are singing his praises because through us they have tasted and seen the goodness of God. Imagine all of the non-believing Gentiles who would not have heard of God's mercy and power if Jesus had granted this man's request. Christ sets the agenda for our lives with our good in view, but also the good of others. And because of this, because his power is conjoined with his love, we can trust him. We can entrust ourselves to him. He will not waste our lives. He will not betray us. He will not use his power to destroy us. He is using us to accomplish his beautiful purposes in this world so that all people can taste and see the mercy of God. So if we come to him, we must come in humility. With open hands and an open heart, he will not give us what we ask all the time, but he will give us what he knows is for our good and the good of others. And so, to sum up, Christ's kingdom comes to us with great power, so we must come to him with great desire. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us power through the Son, in the Spirit, to be human, to serve the one who made us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to turn from sin Give us the great desire for you that this demon-possessed man had so that all may know of your compassion through us. In your son's name we pray, amen.